How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of X Lapsed, and this is a uh, a special late evening edition, or at least late evening recording. Uh, I'm trying to find a time to record this show where uh, the air conditioner doesn't kick on every five minutes, so <laughs> I'm going a little bit later in the evening. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I am living in Arizona, and uh, one thing about Arizona, even at the end of September, it is very, very hot. Uh, we are still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit here, and will be if the uh, if the Weather Channel app is right for uh, at least another week or so. So, yeah, this is a little bit late in the evening, and uh, hopefully <laughs> you won't be hearing uh, my roaring air conditioner. Uh, at least as often as uh, as you might in previous episodes, but uh, we got uh, well, we got a banger today. Uh, this is uh, of course episode number twenty. We are discussing Excalibur number two, or Excalibur volume four, number two, perhaps uh, January twenty twenty cover date. The story is called Verse Two: A Tower of Flowers. Written by Teeny Howard, art by Marcus Toe, colors by Eric Archanaga. Let is VCs Corey Petit, De- design Tom Muller, head of X, Hickman edits Abisa White Sabolski, cover price $3.99 American, on sale November 20th, 2019. Let's hop right in. We open up in flashback land, and it's uh, the 4th century BC, or BCE if you prefer, and uh, a set of mutant twins is uh, preparing to set sail on the English Channel in a tiny ramshackle raft. Once they get going, they don't make it very far because, uh, well, they suck at making rafts. Apocalypse, we can still call him that since this is a flashback, he watches as they dip into the drink and drown. He does nothing to help them because, you know, survival of the fittest and whatnot. I, uh, I find it interesting, not, not so much interesting, but uh, they do make sure to say 4th century BCE here. And uh, I... Uh, when I went back to college, it was around 2011, or it was not around 2011, it was in 2011. And uh, they were in the process of, like, updating all of the texts from B.C. to B.C.E. at that point. And I remember a lot of people being very annoyed. Um, and then people being annoyed at the people who were annoyed. And it just became this cluster of people annoyed at everybody for, I guess, at the end of the day, they forgot the reason why they were annoyed. But uh, anytime I see B.C.E., I'm always, I always, I'm always reminded of my of my return to academia and uh the little you know you know little uproar that uh, that i faced there and i all i wanted to do was read my book and, and take my tests and write my papers and, and just get the hell out but uh other people were uh, very very into the argument but uh let's move on now to the present our excalibur crew is on kitty pride's boat 
and they actually call her Kate. So how about that? I am still going to call her Kitty. Uh, They are in the Atlantic off the coast of Cromwell, England. Now, Kitty's all excited to see the old Excalibur lighthouse and says she hasn't seen it since the last time they blew it up. And now, as part of another show on this channel, From Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, we read the issue not too long ago where TechNet sent hard-boiled Howie, or Henry, (laughs) into the lighthouse to blow it up. So I wonder if that's what she's talking about. I think that was Excalibur number 42 uh, from uh, 1991, because after that, they got, like, the the high-tech... Um, sort of look, mushroom-looking uh, lighthouse that TechNet helped them build. But uh, but I wonder if that's what she's talking about here. Anyway, let's meet our cast. We have Captain Britain, who's Betsy. We have Apocalypse, who is not called a here. Jubilee, Rogue, Gambit, Shogo, and Kate Pride. Uh, double page spread of creds, then back to comics. Now, Gambit is still fretting about Rogue being, well, you know, all comatose and floral. Uh, Jubilee expresses some concern about Shogo being left on Krakoa. Now, she claims that Todd is safe, hidden away from the hands of Apocalypse. She further claims that Shogo is also safe from Gambit, whatever that implies. Um, Suddenly, the boat is overcome by... Selkies? Oh, come on. Uh, Betsy informs the team that the Selkies are from an old Scottish story, and they are, quote, a sort of seal people. And, uh, And so they fight. Uh, Betsy finally deduces that it's her thereafter, and to draw them away from Kitty's tub, she dives into the drink. Then, like a moment later, she's up on the cra- uh, crag of rock. Then she TKs the rest of the team, minus Kitty, to the rock with her, and Kitty sails to safety as intended. Now, the Selkies, being seal people, cannot climb the crags, and so the, te- the team is safe for now. There is, however, no Excalibur lighthouse here, which is sort of suspect because they thought it was going to be here. From here, our trio, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit, they each pick up an end of floral slumberette rogue, and they head toward the top of the crags. Why they don't just TK her there? I don't know. It was good enough to get her off the boat. Oh, well. Suddenly, Captain Britain notices a whole slew of cloaked figures walking ahead of them, and uh, she is the only one who can see them. She rushes up to one to ask who they are and where the lighthouse went. And she's clued in to the existence of the dread Mariana Stern. I know what you're thinking. No, no, not Mariana Stern. That sounds like the scariest PTA mom you'd ever meet. Uh, now Stern is a uh, you know the she's part of that coven that we we saw her at the end of last issue of Excalibur, where she ran up the stairs and all that stuff. She had the the crystals, right? Now Stern, we hear, gets her powers from Morgan or Morgane, however they're spelling it here. Morgan Le Fay, of course. Uh, now, the druid then tells Betsy they will allow her to plant some Krakoan fruit here in order to protect the land. Betsy reports this to all her teammates and confirms that Morgan's agents have burned down her family's castle. Uh, Gambit ain't buying it, and he just kind of assumes she's having a fit or something. And uh, it's always interesting seeing the cynic in a story that's like completely based in magic and mysticism. It's like, have you not seen everything else that's gone on here, Gambit? You just fought Selkies. And, and this is where you draw the line. Anywho, they set Rogue down atop the crags, where suddenly her floral tomb grows into a brand new lighthouse-looking thing. Now, Gambit worries that the light atop the lighthouse is Rogue. Uh, well, let's have us an info page, straight from the grimoire of A. It's a, well, it's a schematic of a lighthouse, sort of. Uh, there's some mention of those dead twins from the opening flashback, uh, 
maybe they've been reformed into crystals. I, I don't know. This is really, this ain't my kind of story, and it's uh, it's losing me. Um, now inside, we get a scene of our trio of X X Men slash Excaliburites chatting, which. I mean, these are my favorite sorts of scenes. Uh, I love these scenes where uh, where the the theme just talks, and uh, we get to see them converse and uh, interface. You know. Now this one, it's not half bad. They're all sort of on edge, and they're snipping at one another. Uh, Gambit's still freaking out about Rogue. Jubilee's still worried about Shogo. Betsy's just trying to figure out what in the hell's exactly going on here. They all ultimately decide to, you know, give it a sleep. They're going to try and get some sleep, figure it out in the morning. Later, Jubilee wakes up only to find A holding Shogo. She rushes toward him, but is frozen in her tracks. A notes that Shogo is human, and uh, he might not be too keen on a human living in his mutant paradise. Okay, so Shogo is human then. I, I could have sworn I saw him floating at some point, but maybe he was just caught up in... Somebody's telekinesis bubble or something, I don't know. Or maybe, just maybe, I was actually confusing him with Joy Boy from uh, TechNet. Who knows? Uh, This is ultimately revealed as having been Jubilee's nightmare. So Jubilee actually wakes up, gets out of bed, and she sneaks out of the lighthouse. We just had one dream, let's have another. This one, Captain Britain's. Now she's in a field following a flaming wolf with a sword on its back. They come to a statue of a... It holds a fruit-filled plate with the words, He will use us, dash, we can use him, etched on it. Betsy takes a piece of melon or something off the plate and bites into it. Uh, The flaming fox, or wolf, tells her she can trust it before Betsy is stirred awake by Shogo eating her hair. You see, after her nightmare, Jubilee snuck back through a Krakoan portal to pick up the tot. Though, she promises to drop him off again when the going gets tough, which, duh, it soon will. Now, Betsy, Jubilee, and Gambit head to the top of the lighthouse. Uh, Seems like they all had pretty weird dreams, though we're not privy to Remy's. Uh, Jubilee and Gambit talk a bit more about their worries, to the point where the latter has to make it clear that, you know, this isn't a competition, you know, to see who has the bigger problems here. We're not in a contest. Uh, Then, the druids show up again. And uh, we have uh, Betsy goes to greet them, and she's informed that the enemy is the coven Akaba, Akaba, however you say that. Of course, now, Akaba is not an unfamiliar term for us here. Uh, Mora was, you know, Mother Akaba in a life, uh, her ninth life in the uh, year 100. Uh, the druids, they yak on for a bit until the coven descends upon them, and, uh, well, of course, they fight. Now, Captain Britain keeps on keeping on when suddenly the voice of A floods her head. She asks if, uh, he asks if she needs his aid. She says, no. He reminds her that her brother is still being corrupted by Morgan Le... She still says no. He then tells her that Coven Akaba used to report to him. They were ordinary humans who used magic to put them on par with Homo Superior. They thought that this would cause A to spare them, and it did not. Oh, and also, A himself might be responsible for that Krakoan Gate in the Avalon Pool and Otherworld that we saw last issue. He again asks if she needs his help, and she is not keen on giving him the big thumbs up, but, I mean, at this point, it feels like she's really running out of tricks. Now, A vows to protect the lighthouse while Betsy and the gang head into Otherworld to shut down Morgan. Betsy still refuses to enlist his aid. Before we know it, A arrives anyway, 
and uh, the first person to see him is Jubilee, and she is none too pleased. He approaches Captain Britain and tells her it's time for her to do the whole, you know, other world thing to save Brian. And uh, she insists, still, she doesn't want his help. He manifests a giant glowing hammer and assures her that the lighthouse will remain standing while she's away. Betsy finally relents and she begins begging Gambit and Jubilee to accompany her. Neither of them want to go, you know, since Gambit doesn't want to leave Rogue and Jubilee damn sure doesn't want to leave Shogo with the big blue bad guy. Uh, Betsy manages to convince them. You know, they, they can't do anything about Rogue, but it looks like Shogo might actually be going with them to Otherworld, um, maybe by way of Krakoa. Who knows? Uh, now we wrap up with the trio stepping through the portal, and on the other side, Jubilee realizes that she's no longer holding the baby. Just then, a giant green flame-breathing dragon appears, and it says Shogo, which is, of course, the only word Shogo knows how to say. Okay. Uh, now, the issue closes with a waste of an info page that just gives us the lyrics to a druid lullaby. Um, I did the, you know, the requisite quoted Google search to confirm whether or not this was a real druid lullaby. Nothing came up except this issue, so I'm guessing it's not real. But that's, uh, that's Excalibur number two. So, uh, I've got a question. Uh, wh- where's my X-Men comic at? Um, I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible here, you know, uh, trying to take things as they come, leave all my preconceptions behind, but, uh, what is this? Selkies? Druids? Uh, have we stumbled into a and d campaign? Um, I hope this isn't how the entire series is gonna go, and I hope that this isn't informing in any way what X of Swords is gonna be. I really want more characterization. I want more time with these people without this, like, weird magic overtone. Um, And I don't want to slight the creative team, and I don't want to say this was bad, because it's not. It's just not for me. Uh, This is not a take on the X-Men that I necessarily need. Um, Thinking back, I'm reminded a bit of... Oh boy, what was it? What that? What the guy from Conan? Uh, Kulan Gath. Kulan Gath. Uh, there was a story, an X Men issue, a couple of X Men issues, uh, probably around like the one eighties, um, with Kulan Gath in it. And X fans seem like really split on that story. Some absolutely adore it, while others, like me, like might just skip it entirely during their X Men rereads. Uh, this just isn't the sort of like trapping that I want to see the X-Men in. And again, no fault of the creative. Uh, Just a story that's barking up the wrong tree when it comes to my own personal tastes. Um, Not not the kind of thing I'm looking for, unfortunately. That said, I love the art. Uh, Marcus Toes or Two... I gotta figure out how to say his name. Marcus's work really pops off the page here. Uh, He made a story that, you know, as mentioned, was pretty uninteresting to me. He seemed very visually appealing. Um, let, let's keep on the side of positivity for a little bit. Let's talk about uh, A's place among this team, uh, unofficial or not, or official or not, I guess. There's one aspect of the story that really shines to me. Um, he's a very tricky character. He's just he's very, very, very tricky. Um, I mean, let's take, let's take the... The between, the between the covers thing out of here for a second. Now, do we, as readers, trust him? Should we trust him? I mean, is he being honest and truthful that he only has the mutant's best interest at heart? Or is he in this for himself? I mean, 
I hate to go to the old uh, the old Chris Chestnut here, but are there more shoes left to drop? You know. Um, now, just like us, let's take it into the book here. The other characters in the book have this trepidation towards him. You know, uh, Betsy flat out refuses his aid until there's like just she's absolutely left with no other choice, right? He basically shoved her through the portal when you think about it. It's clear that A.E. has his own machinations and motivations, but uh, I gotta say, it's been a really good time trying to trying to like suss them out uh, along with the rest of the cast. Uh, if I'm gonna give this uh, this issue high marks on anything, this would be it. This is definitely the strongest part of the issue by far for me. Um, I did enjoy the brief bits of interaction between Gambit, Jubilee, and Betsy, though, as mentioned, they were very, very brief. And they were also kind of bitey at one another, which... It can work, right? You know, that, that sort of thing can work. I've, we've, I think we've all read issues where, you know, two characters on the same team are in the middle of an argument, and, uh, and, and they're just, you know, debating. And that, that can work. And that can work with the X-Men, that can work with these three characters. But here... It just felt a bit repetitive. I mean, how many times on a single page do we need to confirm that Gambit's upset and worried about Rogue? It's like, dude, we get it. You said it two panels ago. And you said it two panels before that. And you're gonna say it in two panels from now. Very repetitive. Um, Also, Betsy's got like this weird aloofness that seemed a bit off-putting. Um... Where she's kind... I mean, she's got a lot on her plate, right? But still, she's kind of dismissive of Gambit and Jubilee's worries. uh, No matter how many times they explain them. Because they explain them quite often. But she was just kind of dismissive of it. And uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Overall, um, this wasn't my favorite. And I can't say as I'm looking forward to seeing these characters fight the big Shogo dragon next issue. Which I'm assuming is going to happen. Or... I I can't even hazard a guess, but uh, this is uh, not my kind of X-Men story, um, unfortunately. Uh, it, it does a lot of things right, but it also does a lot of things that I just don't care about. Now, uh, that is Excalibur number two, and uh, before I let you go, let's touch on a little bit of feedback. We got a letter from Damien, which, as luck would have it, is discussing the last issue of Excalibur from episode... Uh, What would it have been? 15? Episode 15, Excalibur number 1. Now, Damien says, Excalibur is a difficult book for me. I have a certain amount of affection for some of the characters, and I like to see comics set in the UK. But a lot of the characters in this team have been broken by continuity. Rogue was one of my favorite X-Men right up until that Jim Lee issue where she throws herself at Gambit at a picnic. I know I lost this battle decades ago, but I really can't see the Rogue I knew falling for Gambit. And uh, that's uh, that's actually an issue. Uh, that's X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, that I did a long-form episode of Chris's on Infinite Earths on. Well, it was originally an episode of Remarvel before I folded all of the Remarvels into my Chris's on Infinite Earths legacy number. Uh, thanks for the idea there, Marvel. Uh, it's episode 40 in the archives, if anybody's interested. Um, now, that's that issue and story is very special to me. Though, you know, I... It's worth noting that I did come into comics around this time, and so it really informed my takes on characters like Rogue and Gambit. So I didn't have the years of familiarity with them, or Rogue specifically, that that you did. It's also a a notable issue for me because this this issue, X-Men Volume 2, Number 8, was my first ever, you know, white whale, my comics white whale. 
I searched for this thing for a couple of years before I found it. I was able to find everything I wanted except for X-Men number 8. And uh, that search for this issue is a big part of that episode, episode 40 of Chris's on Infinite Earths. Uh, I mean, while I'm, while I'm plugging myself <clears throat> in front of everybody, uh, for those who've never listened to like the, the Chris's on Infinite Earths show, those are sort of like half-and-half half shows. Uh, they usually open with me telling an anecdote that could uh, either be like serious and personal or you know just plain silly. Then I tenuously tie that anecdote into a comic book. Um, I think I've uh, I think I've described those episodes as emotional shiatsu massages because <laughs> I uh, I come away from them pretty much completely drained and and usually in some kind of pain. Uh, it, it's great fun though. So if you if you haven't listened to a Chris show. Uh, well, this little plug probably won't inspire you to, but they're there if you want them. And uh, that episode in particular, Chris's on Infinite Earths, episode number 40 in the archives. Now, back to Damien's message. He says, I really enjoy the Captain Britain mythos. The Alan Davis issues where Betsy became the captain and lost her eyes were fantastic. The idea of her reclaiming that role and succeeding this time is very appealing. And I think these were before my time. My, you know, strictly UK Captain Britain comics knowledge is pretty sparse. I have to admit that. It's really confined to the to the Alan Moore collection that Marvel put out, like, right after Jemis and Quesada took over, uh, where they famously, like, they did the one thing Alan Moore asked them not to do, or they didn't do the one thing he did ask them to do. They left his they left his uh, name out of the Indicia as, a, like, a creator. Um, so that was a... Uh, that was, you know, I think that was the olive branch that didn't quite make its way to, uh, to Alan Moore from Marvel, uh, turn of the century Marvel. So I read that, and I also read an Alice da- Alan Davis collection from probably, boy, when was that? Um, the collection was probably from the mid-90s, so somewhere before then, I guess. I, I too, really enjoyed them both. Um, and actually, that Alan Moore, uh, the Fury storyline was actually set to be a long-form episode of the Cosmic Treadmill that I was really looking forward to doing because uh, that one, that's a that's a story that, you know, people, when you think about Alan Moore, people pick out things like, you know, like Watchmen and stuff and uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and uh, V for Vendetta as their favorites. And mine uh, are Miracle Man or Marvel Man and uh, the Captain Britain stuff here because... Somehow, he was able to turn this character, the Fury, who you'd never seen before, and you only saw, like, once again uh, when Claremont came back in uh, the mid-2000s, uh, that he turned this Fury character into something that was actually scary, you know? And I had no reason to think that Captain Britain wasn't going to survive, but, you know, when you're reading it, you had doubts. It was so well done. So well done. Uh, back to uh, Damien. He says, uh, Apocalypse has been fascinating fascinating in Hoxpox, so I wanted to see what happened next. And 100% agreed. Uh, Apocalypse bits have been some of the most interesting stuff so far. Uh, in, in this issue, that's, you know, my favorite part of this issue is the, uh, is the weirdness around Apocalypse. Now, uh, Jubilee, oh, back to Damien, he says, Jubilee had been slightly rescued in the Generation X run by Christina Strain, where they removed her vampire curse, but also maneuvered her into a mentorship role. And uh, I dropped that legacy-era Generation X series like a hot rock. (laughs) I 
did not like it. Uh, I was so excited for it, too. Um, you know, Generation X was like my New Mutants title, you know. Uh, came out in, what, 94-ish, 95-ish. All the characters were my age. You know, I was 14, 15 years old, and I, I just loved it. Uh, also, Generation X was my first, like, real exposure to the work of Chris Bacciolo, or Bacciolo, another guy whose name I can't say, but I can read it and I can type it on a screen, I just can't say it. Uh, so, uh, uh, Chris Bacciolo, uh, however you say that, is uh, definitely in, like, my top three all-time comics artists. I just absolutely adore his work. Uh, one thing about it is it always reminds me of Autumn, which, I don't know, makes me feel happy inside for some reason. Uh, back to Damien, he says, uh, Marcus Toe, or Two, is a great artist. I remember seeing his early work thinking, here's another sub-Majuara manga artist, but he's really grown into a phenomenal talent. Teeny Howard has written stuff I enjoyed too, so that was hopeful. Unfortunately, they fell into every trap I saw ahead. I became more and more convinced that Americans should not be allowed to write comics set in the UK. Creating stories that combine Arthurian legend with the modern UK is not easy. And the thing, of, the thing of it is, with me personally, I couldn't even tell you if a comic of that stripe is good or bad, because to me, it's just it's just not my kind of comic. Um, uh, back to Damien, he says, Paul Cornell managed it with MI-13, and Kieran Gillen managed with Once and Future, but most fail. Even Alan Davis chose to make Merlin and Roma into sci-fi characters to make it work. I have to admire the bravery of attempting to try and combine all these things, but I just can't accept stories where my homeland is presented as being a place where the Queen and Captain Britain are keeping us safe from evil witches and druids. And <laughs> I never considered that, you know? You look at this, and, I mean, it is kind of a distillation of, like, things American think when they think of England or, <laughs> or the UK. It's... I, I can totally absolutely appreciate how that might be off-putting and that's just not something i ever considered but i mean it is they're kind of like going the low-hanging fruit here right um i never i never considered that it's it reminds me if if anybody listening is like into anime or manga um whenever they want to do like the american stereotype they just they always have us like depicted as cowboys so <laughs> i can get i get that that's a bit annoying um yeah, that is, that, that's funny. I never thought about that. Um, now, uh, to wrap up Damien's message, he says, By the way, I demand you keep saying Apocalypse new name like that. I like to imagine he's using his shape-changing powers to do the most enormous Fonz-esque thumbs, thumbs up every time you say it. And so, yes, the, uh, the Nick from Family Ties slash Arthur Fonzarelli A will remain, because, uh, I mean, this is an Arthurian story after all, right? And, we have an Arthurian Fonzarelli. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for your uh, for your message, Damien. I love hearing from you. And uh, I, I love your insight because uh, you're, you're picking... You're, you're showing me things I miss, and you're telling me... Uh, you're, you're going through your prism. Looking at a book like this is, uh, is fascinating to me because you're picking up things that I wouldn't even think twice about. So thank you so much for your message. Uh, we'll wrap up today with a short uh, excerpt from a conversation I had with my buddy Walt, uh, Walt Nealon from Comics Reviews by Walt. Uh, this is a reference to an episode where we talked a little bit about uh, the illegitimacy of the, uh, I think, what did they call it, the missing decade or whatever, uh, the post-Avengers vs. X-Men stuff. 
Now, Walt says, the post-AVX's illegitimacy, I can see that. I read a bit into the now stage, but I'd be quite content to go AVX to HoxPoxDocs. Um, and uh, the reason I'm including this here is because it gave me this weird mental exercise where I was trying to see what like value-added stories we've gotten since AVX until HoxPoxDocs. And uh, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I, you know, as much as I hate like the whole meta commentary in comics, or I don't hate it. I just think it can be over relied on and maybe a little too cute at times. But they, uh, there was that that uh, panel in one of the Hoxpox issues that had the Phoenix Five. You know, you had Cyclops, Namor, Magic Colossus, and uh, the White Queen in their Phoenix attire. You know, in, at, toward the end of uh, Avengers vs X Men, and they called it something like the Missing Decade or the Lost Decade. And uh, I think I made a remark about how. You know, I wouldn't mind if that was actually a lost decade. And with Walt's comment here, I'm trying to think if there's anything anything worth saving since AVX. You know, I thought like, oh yeah, well, I, I enjoyed Wolverine versus the um, Wolverine versus Wolverine and the X Men, but that actually came first. That came before AVX. That actually led into AVX. And uh, I'm trying to think if there's a single thing about the X Men I would like to hold on to. Uh, between, what was it, 2012 and 2019. And I can't I can't think of a damn thing. Uh, I will admit that I was a fan of, like, the first, maybe first dozen issues of all new X-Men, the Bendis stuff with the, uh, the original five coming up from the past. I thought it was novel, and I just enjoyed... I enjoyed the take, uh... It wasn't until like the voices of all these characters kind of kind of shifted, you know, um, to I don't know. They didn't feel like when they came, they kind of felt like themselves, right? You know, uh, you had Cyclops, who was like this sort of he was the leader, of course, but he had this youthfulness to him where he was uncertain of himself. Uh, you know, they all just felt like they were literally yanked out of an issue of uh, you know the first sixty six, right? Then something changed, <laughs> and it, they, I think it's safe to say they overstayed their welcome. I think Marvel might have been a little surprised that it was as successful as it was, relatively speaking, because, I mean, the X-Men were not a top priority, um, but it was good, clean fun at first, right? Um, it was just an interesting little take here, and I wasn't expecting it to last for, I mean, it lasted for, what, six years, these other characters were here? Ridiculous But uh, I'm trying to think of anything else I'd keep um, I enjoyed Jeff Lemire's extraordinary X-Men run Not not all of it Because a lot of it was tied up in, in crossovers But what wasn't tied up in crossovers I enjoyed um, But other than that Boy <laughs> Maybe we can call this a lost decade Because uh, I can't think of any If anyone listening has any Anything to point to You know from from AVX to Hox Pox Docs, that's worth reading. You know, outside of the stuff that's leading up to House of X, Dawn of X, uh, like, you know, Andrew and Belfa- Belfast mentioned uh, the Extermination uh, miniseries that, I, that I'm going to be, I'm going to hopefully be reading pretty soon. I've got the trade here. Um, also, The Resurrection of Phoenix, that miniseries I've heard a lot of good things about. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. So, uh, 
yeah, if uh, if you agree, disagree, let me know. Let me know what uh, what your thoughts are on the you know the quote lost decade. Uh, what you guys liked, maybe what you guys didn't like, maybe you agree and just be like, eh, let's get rid of it. Let's jettison the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear. Uh, so. On that note, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You could find show notes and all the uh, stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. Uh, there's also the Xlapsed page, xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. If you want to chat us up on Facebook, 90s X-Men is the group where you could find uh, me and a bunch of people <laughs> who talk about X-Men sometimes. So if you're interested in joining the conversation, please feel free. The complete audio archives for the Chris and Reggie channel are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Current shows going on. We still have moratory Mondays for a few more weeks until we uh, wrap that that show up. Uh, The latest episode had a wonderful part one of a QA and a we had with uh, the original artist of Strike Force Moratory and the co-creator, Brent Anderson. I think that's... uh, a lot of really good information there. A lot of fun getting those answers and being able to share them with the listener. So if that's something you might want to hear, it's there for you. ChrisandReggie.podbean.com But I think that's all I got for you today. Uh, the next episode, we will be taking a look at Marauders number 2, which I am very, very, very much looking forward to. So till then, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching.